We are in Matthew chapter 26, and uh, we have been going through the gospel of Matthew. That's what we do here at Calvary. We'll take a book of the Bible, and uh, we'll start in the beginning, and we'll start studying through, and and, uh, we find ourselves in chapter 26. Now, we were in chapter 24 and 25 uh, for a long time where Jesus was talking about the end times, and I know some of you were beginning to think that we would be talking about the end times until the end of time, but uh, we actually uh, we're going to jump into something different today. We're going to do it a little bit different. We're going to take a larger section. We're going to read through, give some commentary, and then uh, move through as as we go. As our story picks up, it's the final week of Jesus's ministry. He's going to be for the most part in Jerusalem, going out of town uh, every night, but they're in in uh, Jerusalem and again a couple of days before the crucifixion. We're going to pick it up and verse 1 of chapter 26, and it says, when Jesus had finished all these words, he said to his disciples, you know that after two days the Passover is coming, and the Son of Man is going to be handed over for crucifixion. Now, he's been saying this over and over to the disciples, and they miss it every time that he says it. What we're going to find is that for some reason, the, the women seem to understand what's going on, but, but the disciples don't. He's two days away from, this, uh, from the crucifixion. It's the time of the Passover. Verse 3, it says, And the chief priests and the elders of the people were gathered together in the court of the high priest named Caiaphas, and they plotted together to seize Jesus by stealth and kill him. But they were saying, not during the festival, otherwise a riot might occur among the people. This is the leadership of Israel. Jesus is very popular among the people. He's at odds with the religious establishment. And uh, so they want to get him and they want to kill him, but they don't want to do it during the Passover because you have a million people in from out of town. Jesus is very popular. And, uh, you know, so they're, they're concerned that there would be a riot. So they, they want to somehow get him, but not during the Passover. We're going to find that Jesus will have to be crucified on the Passover in order for there to be the fulfillment of prophecy. And we'll talk about that as we go. Verse 6, it says, now when Jesus was in Bethany at the home of Simon the leper, a woman came to him with an alabaster vial of very costly perfume. And she poured it on his head, and I've underlined the word head, as he reclined at the table. Now, when, uh, if you've been traveling with us through our study of Matthew, uh, one of the things that we've said is that Matthew, as he writes, he writes thematically. And uh, so sometimes he doesn't write chronolo- chronologically, but what we we'll find here today is he's sharing an event that actually took place a week before He's going to pair that event, the faithfulness of this woman, with the betrayal of one of his disciples. And so he's going to tell the two stories together to compare and contrast. So Jesus is in this little town of Bethany. He would be in Jerusalem during the day, but at night he would head two miles outside of town to the east to this town of Bethany. Just to give you some perspective, we have a map. We can pull that in just a, a little bit. There we go. Um, you have Jerusalem, and then two miles outside of that, you have Bethany. In case you miss it, it's there in the circle. Yeah. So it's a two-mile journey, and he goes out every night. So he is at the home of Simon the leper. Now, obviously, this Simon the leper is somebody who had been previously healed by Jesus, because in that day and in that world, if you had leprosy, uh, you could not have a dinner party. So the, the, it's a given that he is healed. So they are there, 
and in verse 7, I'm going to pick it up and read a few verses. It says, a woman came to him with an alabaster vial of very costly perfume, and she poured it on his head as he reclined at the table. But the disciples, and I've underlined that, were indignant when they saw this and said, why this waste? And I've underlined that word waste. For this perfume might have been sold for a high price and the money given to the poor. But Jesus, aware of this, said to them, why do you bother the woman? She's done a good deed to me. How many of your Bibles say she did a beautiful thing? Good, I like that. And we'll talk about that. Verse 11, for you always have the poor with you, but you do not always have me. For when she poured this perfume on my body, she did it to prepare me for burial. Therefore, I say to you, wherever this gospel is preached in the whole world, what this woman has done will also be spoken of in memory of her, which is true because we're talking about it today. If you've been traveling with us through our study of Matthew, one of the things that we've highlighted is that Matthew focuses in on the teachings of Jesus. So when you have the Sermon on the Mount, that'll be three chapters long. The other gospel writers focus in on more of the events. So Matthew comes to a story like this, and he doesn't give us all the details because that's not typically his focus. So I wanted to get a few more details and share with us. So if you were to read this from the Gospel of John, it would go like this. And I put that there in your outline. They made a supper for him there. So they made a supper for him there, and Martha was serving, but Lazarus was one of those reclining at the table with him. Mary then took a pound of very costly perfume of pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus, and I've underlined the word feet, and wiped his feet with her hair, and the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas, underline that, Iscariot, one of his disciples who was intending to betray him, said, why was this perfume not sold for 300 denarii, I've underlined that, and given to poor people? Now he said this not because he was concerned about the poor, but because he was a thief. And uh, he, he had the money box and he used to pill for what was put into it. So John tells us who this woman is. This is Mary, the sister of a guy named Lazarus. If you're familiar with the story, Lazarus is somebody that Jesus raises from the dead sometime in the past. And so there's two sisters, Mary and Martha. So we know who they are, as, as John tells us. And also um, she pours expensive perfume on his feet. Now in Matthew's gospel in verse 7, it says it was poured on his head. And we're going to find out that it's not contradictory, but it's complementary. It's going to be both, and we'll see why in just a moment. So then Judas says, you could have sold this for 300 denarii. A denarii was the equivalent of one day's wage. So this would represent, the value of this would represent 300 days wage, about a year's worth of income. So that's kind of the, the value there. Now, in all of the, the renditions, it says that they, she took nard there in, on, on your outline, or a very uh, a perfume, but that word there in the original language, it's either nard or costly perfume, however your Bible translates it, that word in the original language is muron, and it's just another way of saying the word myrrh. Does everybody see that? Now, that's important because you will recall that when Jesus was a baby, probably about two years of age, the wise men show up. Now, keep in mind, the shepherds show up the night that Jesus is born. The wise men show up about two years later. A lot of people miss that. But when the wise men show up, they show up with gifts. And we're only told of three. There's probably more but gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Gold would be something that you'd give to a king that would represent their kingship. 
Frankincense would be incense that would be used in the temple uh, by a priest. And so that would represent his, his, his uh, being a priest. And then myrrh was the spice that they used. Now in, in Jewish culture, they did not embalm the body, but they would pack the body with myrrh, which uh, had uh, aromatic effect. And, and so you would pack the body preparing that for death and when, when you put the, body, put the body in. So here, apparently Mary understands what is going to happen to Jesus because she brings myrrh and she begins to put it on his head and then ultimately on his feet, basically preparing the body for his upcoming death. Jesus interprets that for us in verse 12 when he says, for when she poured this perfume on my body, she did it to prepare me for burial. So Jesus interprets that. She knows what she's, she's doing. Now John tells us that the original instigator was not all of the disciples, but it was Judas. Judas starts speaking, why, did you, you know, why, why didn't you just sell this and give it to the poor? And it sounds very spiritual, but Judas starts speaking, and then it begins to spread among all of the disciples. So Matthew says the disciples were saying this. Keep in mind, Matthew was one of the disciples. So Matthew apparently was one of the guys who got caught up in, we should have sold this and given it to the poor. Does that make sense? Jesus will respond to their talking in verse 10, and I put it there in your outline. Verse 10, Jesus says, she has done a beautiful thing to me. Now that's interesting to me because Jesus calls it beautiful. But the next line down there, uh, Judas in verse 8 is the one who's calling it waste. He says, why this waste? And uh, what I find interesting is that Greek word there is apalia. We'll come back to that, but keep that in mind. So, and you want to write this down, that what Judas called waste, Jesus called beautiful. So from his perspective, from Judas's perspective, this was a waste, but Jesus, Jesus thought that it was something beautiful. So Judas says, why this waste? And that word there is apalia, and I'm probably mispronouncing that. It will be just a couple of more days. Jesus will be, be about to be betrayed, and he prays. And in his prayer, he says this, there in your outline. Not one of them perished, but the son of perdition. And you notice the Greek word for perdition is the word apalia. Does everybody see that? Because it just means waste, spiritually, materially. And uh, so Judas is calling what this woman does a waste. But later on, Jesus will pray and he will say, in essence, Judas, your whole life was a waste. It was all a waste. So he completely missed it. Anytime you want to do something extravagant for God, there's probably going to be somebody there who's going to be saying, it's a waste, don't do it. And, uh, but nothing that you do that's extravagant for God, for Jesus, is ever a waste. Now, there is something that I find at least interesting. Um, let me ask you a question. How many of you have been walking with the Lord for at least five years? Okay, uh, how about ten years? All right, we won't go any further than that, but five or ten years. This is, or, or, or more, you've probably experienced this. And you want to write this down, and we'll go through this rather quickly. But this Mary, the, the sister of Lazarus and Martha, will appear three times in the Gospels, and each time she's at the feet of Jesus. So you want to write that down. She's always at the feet of Jesus. She 
is always at the position of being a disciple. Disciples were always at the feet of their rabbi. And so we've just seen how here she's at his feet anointing him. In Luke's gospel, there's the story, and it says he came to a village where where a woman named Martha opened her home to him. And she had a sister, Mary, and then I want you to underline, who sat at the Lord's feet, listening to what he said. But Martha was distracted by all the preparations that had to be made. And she came to him and asked, Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to do all the work by myself? Tell her to help me. And so we we see her there. Well, another time that we see her is the time where Lazarus, her brother, dies. Jesus is coming to raise him from the dead, but he's been dead for four days. Are you familiar with the story? So, So Jesus arrives, and then once again in John's gospel, it will say, when Mary heard this, she got up quickly and went to him, goes to Jesus. Now, when the Jews who had been with Mary, when it says Jews, it means religious leaders, everybody in the story is Jewish. Uh, when the Jews who had been with Mary in the house comforting her, noticed how quickly she got up and went out, they followed her supposing, and I've underlined, supposing she was going to the tomb to mourn there. But when Mary reached the place where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet. And I've underlined that. Mary is the picture of what it means to be a follower of Jesus, a disciple of Jesus, devoted to Jesus. We notice that she's always, when she's mentioned, at the feet of Jesus. Now, what we also notice in every time that Mary is mentioned, and you want to write this down, at each mention, Mary is misunderstood and at times criticized by other believers criticized by other believers. They question her motives. They question her actions. Uh, they, they just, everything, you know, so why, why are you sitting at the feet of Jesus? Why aren't you helping? The reason I say this is because as you follow the Lord, doing what it is that you believe he has called you to do, don't be surprised if at some point some so-called believer, well-meaning believer, and certainly the disciples were believers, don't be surprised if sometimes you find yourself being criticized, uh, questioning your motives, and, and critiquing what it is that you're doing. Now let me just take a quick sample here. Has anybody here ever been doing what it is that you sense that God called you to do, only to be criticized by some other believer? Yes, can I get a witness? Yes, I see those hands in the back. For those of you listening online, thousands of hands are going up all over the auditorium. <laughs> now, if you're here today, if you're here today, and uh, you go, no, nah, I've been following the Lord, and nobody's ever criticized me, questioned my motives, you know, and they've never done that. Here's why. You've only been following Jesus about 15 minutes. But after that, somebody's going to do that. So you, you have to know that. That's just how it is. And uh, certainly as you walk with the Lord, you're going to experience that. But I would also add, and I I didn't put this on the outline, but it's equally important to understand that in each case where Mary is criticized, she's misunderstood, she never defends herself, she never explains herself. When she needs to be defended, she just allows Jesus to do the defending. 
And I think that's very wise because the truth is when she's sitting at the feet of Jesus and Martha wants her to be working, trying to explain to Martha why she's doing that wouldn't have worked. So for you and I, many times what we do is we waste so much time trying to explain and trying to defend. And sometimes we have to be like Mary and just say, you know, if the Lord wants to work it out, he can work it out and let him do that. Okay, let's pick it up in verse 14. It says, then one of them, one of the 12 named Judas Iscariot went to the chief priest and said, what are you willing to give me to betray him to you? And they weighed out 30 pieces, and I've underlined 30 pieces of silver to him. From then on, he began looking for a good opportunity to betray Jesus, to betray him. Now, they don't want to do this at the Passover because they don't want to riot. We're going to find that Jesus is going to force their hand. He's going to do something to make sure that they have to take him on the Passover and crucify him. And, uh, but here he goes to the religious leadership and they give him 30 pieces of silver. Now that, that only represents in that day a few months income. So it's significant, but it's, it's not like you can retire on it. 500 years earlier, there was a prophet named Zechariah. Zechariah, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is writing future prophecy. And he's also being called to act out that future prophecy. He doesn't understand it at the time. You and I, looking back, seeing it, all of a sudden it becomes very clear. There on your outline, again, 500 years before Jesus is born, I said to them, if it is good in your sight, give me my wages. But if not, never mind. So they weighed out 30 shekels of silver. Some of your Bibles would say 30 pieces of silver. As my wages. Then the Lord said to me, this is not Zechariah speaking, it's the Lord, throw it to the potter, that magnificent price at which I, the Lord is speaking, was valued by them. So Zechariah says, so I took the 30 shekels of silver and threw them to the potter in the house of the Lord. It's a very strange prophecy, uh, but if you know the story later on, Judas will come back to the temple He will try to hand back the 30 pieces of silver. They can't take that silver back because it's called blood money, so uh, they can't use it. So he takes the silver and he throws it, throws it at them there on the ground. Now they can't use it for their operating budget, but what they can do is they can take that and they can use it for prepaid expenses. And one of the expenses that they see is that in Jerusalem, when somebody came into Jerusalem from the outside and they died there, uh, it was commonly held that the temple took the responsibility to to do the burial. So they take that and they purchase the potter's field. Interesting to me that there, that part that we underline, it says, then the Lord said to me, throw it to the potter, that magnificent price at which I was valued by them. God says I was valued with just 30 pieces of silver. We know that Jesus was the one that was sold for 30 pieces of silver. This is one of those times where once again you see Jesus is God. He's the one that was sold for 30 pieces of silver. Prophesied 500 years before. Verse 17, now on the first day of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, where do you want us to prepare for you to eat the Passover? Now, if uh, you're not familiar with the Passover, the Passover is something that the Jewish people had celebrated for 1,500 years. The Jewish people were enslaved 
in Egypt. Their situation was hopeless. They couldn't fix their situation. They needed a savior to come along and free them from their oppression, from their slavery. God comes to Moses and he says, here's the plan. Go tell Pharaoh that you have to let these people go. You know the story, Pharaoh says no. So God begins to send plagues. And when you look at those plagues, uh, God destroys their economy. God destroys uh, their crops. They go into a famine. This is something that would take years to recover. They still won't let go. So God says, I'm going to send one more final plague on these people. And that's going to release God's people, the Jewish people. It's the event that we call Passover. God says, here's how I'm going to save my people. You're going to take a lamb, one year old, without blemish. And you're going to kill that lamb. The blood of that lamb is going to go into a bowl. You're going to take hyssop, which is a bush, and you're going to go outside your front door, and you're going to dip that hyssop there in the blood. You're going to put it on the top of your doorpost and on each side. Literally, it would be making the the sign of the cross. They didn't know that at that time. That night, judgment is going to come. Those who are covered by the blood, judgment will pass over. Those who have rejected that plan, they will experience judgment. There on your outline, and you can read the expanded story later, it says, the blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you live. When I see the blood, I will, and you want to underline, pass over. That's where it comes from, Passover. I will pass over you, and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. That is when judgment comes. When judgment came that night, those who were covered by the blood, we would say, God passed over them in judgment. They were not saved because they were good. They were not saved because they were religious. They were not saved for any ritual that they had done. They were saved for one reason and one reason only. They had accepted the blood covering that came from the lamb over their house. And when judgment came, God passed over. In Egypt, many rejected. And those who rejected experienced a great judgment, and that involved death. Well, the Jewish people had celebrated Passover for 1,500 years, not realizing that that was a picture of the ultimate salvation that they would receive. Paul would tell us there on your outline, he would say, for Christ, our Passover has also been sacrificed. In the same way that they were saved through Passover, we are saved. We are saved because we accept the blood, you might say, the blood covering, the blood that he has poured out on our behalf. And we'll talk about that in a few moments. Not because of the good things that we have done, the religious things we have done, uh, any other religious activities. We are saved because we have accepted that blood covering. We'll talk about that in a moment. Central to Passover and the Passover meal was the lamb. But very interesting, in all four gospel renditions of the Passover, of the Last Supper, the one thing that's never mentioned is the lamb. They'll mention the bread, they'll mention the cup, but they will not mention the lamb. And the reason that the lamb is not mentioned is because, and we assume that the lamb, that they did eat the lamb, but the reason that the lamb is not mentioned 
is because the Lamb, the Lamb of God, is right there in their midst. So there's no, no need to mention that. Verse 18, he says, Go into the city to a certain man and say to him, Teacher says, My time is near. I'm to keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. The disciples did as Jesus directed them, and they prepared the Passover. Now, they're to find this man who's there in the city. It's the other Gospels that tell us something about this man. There in your outline, when Mark tells it, he says, go into the city, there you shall meet a man bearing a pitcher of water, follow him. In those days, uh, the way that you'd have water for your household in the day would be that the ladies would get up early, they would go to the cistern or the well, they would fill up the water pitcher, and then they would bring it back and you'd have water for the rest of the day. Carrying the water was women's work. They didn't laugh at the other services either. But the guys wanted to. But, uh, they, f- <laughs> but they wanted to have a good Sunday. So uh, that's my story. So if you were to walk into Jerusalem in the middle of the day and see a guy carrying a pitcher of water, not that it wouldn't happen, but it wasn't something that would happen usual. So that's how you would know it would be him. We're going to just kind of move on there. So when evening came, Jesus was reclining at the table with the 12 disciples. And as he was eating, he said, truly I say to you that one of you will betray me. Now it's important to get the picture of what's going on here because most of us when we think of the Last Supper, we've been influenced by pictures, paintings that were made during the Renaissance, and you see this long table. Jesus is sitting there. All the disciples are sitting down. They're in very spiritual poses, and they're all surrounding Jesus. Have you seen those pictures? So here, here's the thing. In the Middle East, 2,000 years ago, they didn't have tables like they had in Europe during the Renaissance. They didn't have chairs like they had in the Renaissance in Europe. In the Middle East, 2,000 years ago, if they had a table, it would be very low to the ground. But they didn't have chairs. So when you ate a meal, you would sit on the ground, not in a chair. Typically, you would lean back to the person next to you. They didn't have plates, and they didn't have forks, and they didn't have knives. So that that would be something completely uh, unfamiliar to them. What they had and the way that they ate, they would have a bowl in the middle of the table. It would be a common bowl. And the way that you would eat is you would take the bread, you tear off a piece, you would reach into the bowl, and you'd scoop up some of the stew, and that's what you would eat. But they didn't have plates, they didn't have forks or things like that. And they didn't have chairs or or tables. Now, how many of you never heard that before? Good. We learned something. We just close in prayer and go home. Good. So that's the picture. Everybody's sitting on the floor around uh, the bowl. So verse 21, he says, As they were eating, he said, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me. Being deeply grieved, they each one began to say to him, Surely not I, Lord. And I want you to underline the word Lord. We'll come back to that. And he answered, He who dipped the hand with me in the bowl, he is the one who will betray me. At this point, they've all been dipping in the bowl. The Son of Man is to go just as it was written of him. But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been good for that man if he had not been born. And Judas, who was betraying him, said, Surely it is not I, Rabbi, underline the word Rabbi or Master, however your Bible translates that. Jesus said to him, You've said it yourself. I love this because the disciples say, 
Surely it's not I, Lord. Judas, who's betraying him, will not refer to him as Lord. He will call him rabbi, will call him master, anything but Lord. So one of those subtleties in the text. So here, Judas is exposed, and he wasn't prepared for this. He didn't want this to happen at the Passover. But now Jesus is forcing Judas' hand. If you're going to do this, you have to do it now, because now that I've just pointed you out as the one who is betraying, everybody is going to know, and this is going to get out. So if you're going to do this, it has to be right now. Again, um, I love John's rendition of this uh, because John gives a few more details and John tells us something about the disciples. And this is why I love these disciples. They're on your outline. Jesus has just said, one of you is going to betray me. And uh, one of them, the disciple whom Jesus loved, now that's always John in, uh, in John's gospel. The one who Jesus loved was reclining next to him. Simon Peter motioned to this disciple and said, ask him which one he means, because we're going to do him right here. <laughs> it's actually in the original language. It's, just, it's been edited out. But that's the intent. No, it's not in the original. But ask him which one he means. So leaning back on Jesus against Jesus, he asked him, Lord, who is it? And Jesus answered, it's the one whom I will give the piece of bread and when, I've dipped it, when I've dipped it into the dish. Then dipping the piece of bread... He gave it to Judas. So Peter is asking because Peter wants to take care of this right now. You know later on in the evening they're going to come out to arrest Jesus and what's Peter going to do? He's going to pull out his knife and he's going to cut off an ear. Aim's not great, but the intention is good. He wants to do this now before that one who's betraying him has the opportunity to get out the door. John is also one of my favorite disciples because John and James, Jesus referred to them as the sons of thunder, which tells you a little bit about their personality. Church history records that John, although he was very young, was a mountain of a man. He was fearless. So that night when all of the disciples run for their lives because they're afraid of what's going to happen to them, the next day at the crucifixion, who shows up? John is the only disciple who shows up. It's as if John shows up being a mountain of a man and says, all right, you little bitty Roman soldiers, you have any issues with me being here? And apparently nobody did. He's not afraid. So they're going to take care of Judas right now. Do you love these disciples? (laughs) Yeah, me too. They would fit in good here. All right, so Judas splits at that point. Verse 26, it says, while they were eating, Jesus took some bread. After a blessing, he broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, take, eat, this is my body. And when they had taken a cup and given thanks, underline the word thanks there in verse 27. He gave it to them, drink from it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. In this covenant, it's like the Passover. In the Passover, they had to take the blood and that had to be received on the door. This covenant, Jesus says, it's my body, it's my blood. The idea is it's, he's doing everything. When Jesus says, take and eat, take and drink, our part is to receive 
what it is that he's given to us. That's the covenant. You, you take what it is that he's given to us. Jesus here takes the bread and the cup that they had been using for 1,500 years, and he then interprets those things not having to do with how God delivered Israel out of Egypt, but interprets them as pertaining to him. This is his blood. This represents his body. And so verse 29, he says, But I say to you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. Well, there's a couple of things here in uh, the time that we have. Verse 27, I asked you to underline the word thank, uh, thanks. And uh, there on your outline, it says, when he had taken a cup and given thanks, I want you to just notice, I put the Greek word there. The Greek word there is eucharistio. Does everybody see that? For we, the word in English, we say eucharist, eucharist. Now, um, how many of you come from a church background where you celebrated the Eucharist? Okay, So typically in that background, when you celebrate the Eucharist, the, the common belief is that when Jesus says, this is my body, you know, take and eat, this is my blood, take and drink. The belief is because Jesus says, this is my body, that when you take that and it goes inside of you, it literally becomes the body and the blood of Jesus. Now, and, and that's what part of the church would say. Now, we would take a different view, and uh, we would hold that Jesus is using very powerful metaphors to describe something, uh, to describe this new, new covenant. So we would say, when Jesus says, I am the door, or I am the vine, we all get what he's saying. We, we wouldn't say that Jesus is, is made of wood. I don't say that as a joke. The idea is we, we would just accept that that's, that's what he's doing. He's speaking metaphorically there. So we would be more in line with those who would say it doesn't literally become the body and blood, but Jesus is very present in this taking the, 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 the cup and, and the bread. So part of the church calls it the Eucharist, and they have a viewpoint about that. The other part of the church calls it typically communion. Now, how many of you come from a background where it's just called communion? Okay, now that would represent more of where we would come from. There on your outline, Paul would say it like this as he refers to this. Paul would say, the cup of blessing, which we bless, is it not the communion? And I want you to underline that word, communion. And uh, the Greek word there is koinonia, koinonia. If uh, you've been around the church, you've heard that before. The communion of the blood of Christ. The bread which we break, is it not the communion, underline that, or the koinonia of the body of Christ? The word koinonia, is, it's a word that means oneness, it means fellowship. So part of the church would say that it literally becomes the body and the blood of Christ. Our side of the church would say that we believe that there is fellowship and communion, that he's very present, there is oneness, but it does not become literally the body and the blood of Christ. Does that make sense? Okay. So, with that, Passover is such a great picture of what it means to become saved, born again, uh, to become a believer, however you'd want to term that. Because Passover, Jesus takes that metaphor when they were saved from the coming judgment, and there were many that experienced that judgment, 
they were saved not because they were good or because they did things. They were saved for one reason and one reason only. They had chosen to take the blood of the lamb and put it over their doorpost. God saw that and he passed over. Jesus takes the same Passover and points it to him. The covenant that he gives that he gives is in his blood, his body. In the same way, Jesus would say, take and eat, take and drink. Our part is that we receive. Which is why when we see a video like we did today, Bill's father is days away from entering into eternity. It's not based upon what he did. It's based upon what Jesus did and he received that. If you're here today and you've not received that, here's what you need to know. It's not based upon your goodness. It's not based upon anything you've ever done. It's not based upon your ability to keep it. It's based upon what he has done. Your part is to receive it. As I close in prayer today, if you've not done that, you have the opportunity to receive that. He promises that as you receive that, he steps in, he never leaves, he begins a work deep inside of you, and uh, you'll never meet somebody who has come to the place where they say, I received that, I've become born again, I'm saved, who has ever said, I wish I would have waited a little bit longer. You only hear people say, why did I wait? If that's you today, don't wait. Let's pray. Father, as we wrap this up today, thank you for your word and the picture. And I know we went through quite a few verses today. But Lord, here's our prayer. If we're here today and we were to honestly say we've never come to that place where we've said, I want to receive that new covenant. I I want you to pass over me in judgment. I want to be yours. That right now we invite you in. We ask you forgive us of everything that we've ever done, step into our lives, save us, we receive what you call the free gift. And as you step in, we trust, based upon what your word says, that you will never leave. And so we are here, and our desire is to belong to you. And so as we make this decision and you step in, now we ask you to lead us as we go forward. Father, I thank you for this congregation. I thank you for their hunger for your word. I thank you, Lord, for their love for the things of you. And Lord, I thank you that you've allowed us to do this for 21 years. Lord, I pray that you keep each and every one of us until we meet again. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. And all God's people said, God bless you guys. We'll see you next time.